Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. It's a great day to be alive. It's something you knew also. This is Crazy Money. Folks, if you're new, this is a podcast in which we explore the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning. Today's episode is an encore episode with Jonathan Rausch from the Brookings Institution. He is the author of a book called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, and this is a really interesting, important conversation for anybody who is uh, doing well in life and they're in middle age, but they don't quite feel like they've got everything dialed in exactly how they want it in life, despite all the objective success, all the trappings of life that they have achieved. For some reason, they don't feel 100% copacetic inside. We talk why that might be. The good news is you're not alone. I highly encourage you to stick around and listen to this episode. But first, I got to take care of a little business here. The first thing I want to do is say thank you to the new listeners of the Crazy Money Podcast listeners group on Facebook. Those would be Mary Ann LaMonica and Sammy Grant. Sammy, thank you so much for coming to the show in Woodstock last week. It was great to meet you and your lovely bride. Thank you for being such a loyal listener. He's listened to every episode, every single episode, and he started late. So he'll have heard this interview with Jonathan Rausch. But as I re-listened to it this morning, I was reminded of how important it is. Of all the things we're doing here on Crazy Money, this one really does a great job of embodying it. Anyway, if you want to join the Crazy Money listeners group on Facebook, there's a link to it in the show notes. Please check it out. Speaking of feedback on the podcast, I got a, uh, a rating last week. And I know this is kind of navel gazing because I don't want this to be a meta introduction to the podcast, but I have to share this because I think you'll find it both funny, maybe it'll resonate with you, but it's something I also want to address. So the the title of this review is called Jesus Christ, Get On With It. And I believe he wasn't addressing Jesus Christ. He was invoking his name to enhance the importance of, or to emphasize the importance of his message. It's from Seven Zark Seven in the United Kingdom. And I read, this is pretty good, but Christ Almighty, this guy loves the sound of his own voice. Roughly 15 to 20% of every episode is just him waffling and the preamble, that part of the episode we're listening to right now. He didn't write that. That's my aside. Back to his review. I really hate this sort of increasingly common grandstanding. It's not professionalism or hosting. It's self-regard. If you can get through this guy's wagging his tail in your face, it's a pretty decent podcast. That's the review. And I got three stars. I guess I get a one for the preamble or a zero for the preamble and a five for the content. So he just averaged it out. I don't know if you prorated it based on the person. Anyway, so first, so several things here. First of all, seven Zark seven. I really am appreciative that you took the time to write. I dig it. By the way, my 10-year-old daughter also says, why don't you just start with the interview? You don't need to keep rambling at the top. Okay, I get it. Some people don't love this preamble. And here's the thing. There's a technological solution. It's called fast-forwarding or advance. And in your podcast player, there's probably a little circle with an arrow going clockwise that says 3-0. That means you can advance at 30 seconds a click. This preamble generally lasts anywhere from 5 to 8 minutes. Sometimes it's a little longer when I'm just full of my own self-regard clearly. So use that. When I listen to Mark Maron's podcast, WTF, which is a great podcast, I generally skip his preamble. And if you don't dig this, so skip it, get to the conversations. I find those to be better also. How ironic is it that I'm using this preamble to talk about how much he hates 
the preamble. But anyway, hey, Seven Zark Seven, if you're listening to this, again, thank you. If you're so inclined, send me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I would love to send you a Crazy Money t-shirt if it's something you would see value in. And I hope you would. I'm glad you're here. And by the way, all the rest of you, I really do appreciate your ratings and reviews. Yeah, I do use this to get the word out about me because I'm not famous yet. I don't have a half a million Instagram followers. I don't have a TV show that I can use to promote my upcoming comedy dates or to get myself booked other places. This is my platform. And I'm going to use this preamble as a way to talk about what's going on in my life. And I hope you don't find it boring. But if you do, fast forward. That's what it's there for. Let's talk about Jonathan Rauch. Jonathan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and contributing editor to The Atlantic. In his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, he discusses the decline in happiness that people experience in middle-aged and what there is to do about it. I find this one, as I mentioned, to be really dead on the bullseye of what we talk about here at Crazy Money. The difference between how we feel it's going to be when we achieve success and the way it actually feels when we get there and what's changed in our life that makes us feel like that's good, but it's not like overwhelming. It's not as cathartic as I thought it would be. And why is that? Why at middle age, when you've checked all the boxes, you got a great house, you got a great family, you got a great job, whatever those boxes are for you. And you still feel a little bit missing. You feel wanting on some level. And that's what Jonathan talks about. And I think he's done all of us a great service by writing this book. A little bit more about him. His writing spans the full spectrum of society, including politics, marijuana legalization, healthcare, gay marriage, adultery, agriculture, economics, height discrimination, yeah, and animal rights. This work has earned him many honors, including the National Magazine Award, the National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association Prize for Excellence in Opinion Writing. You may have come across his writing when it has appeared in The Economist, Reason, Harper's Fortune, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many, many other prestigious publications. Please enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Rausch. All right, Jonathan Rausch, welcome to Crazy Money. It's great to be here. Thank you, Paul. Jonathan, you've written six books and many articles in innumerable publications on a wide variety of topics, including public policy, culture, and government. How did you get interested in the topic of happiness? (laughs) My life got me interested. I was someone who was knocking it out of the ballpark, achieving my life goals in my 40s. Yet, as my 40s dragged on, I felt increasingly mired in a sense of ungratitude the sense of malaise, the sense of disappointment, none of it made any sense. There was no reason for it. And the harder harder I tried to understand it, the more I felt like maybe there's something wrong with me. (laughs) And this went on for quite a while. Uh, It wasn't a midlife crisis. I just had this kind of, it was like living in a drizzle all the time, a drizzle of disappointment. Toward my late 40s, I discovered this strand of research, now fairly well-known, then very obscure, on finding that there's a natural dip in life satisfaction in the 40s, other things being equal 40s and early 50s. So I looked into it and discovered it described me and millions of other people to a T, and that knowing about it is part of the best way to get through it. So I decided to write a book about it and hopefully spare some other people some of what I had. The name of the book is The Happiness Curve. I have just completed it, and I have to say I recognize a lot of what's going on in my life in your story and in the stories of those in it. Can you kind of summarize what that curve is? I'd love to, but first, I cannot resist asking, how old are you, Paul? I'm 50 and three quarters years old. <laughs> but who's counting? Right. So, so that's interesting. When I was 50, 
a bunch of bad things, real setbacks happened, which hadn't happened before my job went away. My father got terribly sick and then, then died and I was the caregiver, stuff like that. Yet my satisfaction with life began to turn a corner and improved and has ever since. It's textbook happiness curve. So we can talk about why this happens and who it happens to. There are tons of interesting details, but the basic finding is that on its own, the process of aging works against happiness in middle age. doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it harder, like walking uphill. And then it works for happiness in second half of 50s, 60s, and beyond. And this seems to be something pretty universal, not in every individual, but in lots of cultures and societies. It's even been found in chimps and orangutans. And what it tells us is that midlife is a more vulnerable time in life than most people realize or get support for. And aging after midlife, late adulthood, is a more rewarding time of life than most people realize. So let's talk about some of these phases, and we can even use one of the examples you give in your book, Carl, 45. He says in his 20s, his life was exciting. He was getting laid left and right. God bless you, Carl. Then in (laughs) in his 30s, responsibility and predictability crept in, marriage, parenthood, doing what he was supposed to doing, which he described as effing work. And then in his 40s, even though he was successful, he found himself unsatisfied, wanted to grab freedom at the margins. He wasn't depressed. He was dissatisfied. Is that a pretty typical first half of the you? Yeah, I open the book with Carl because it's a good description and it's very much like what I felt. This nagging sense of disappointment, this feeling of being trapped, of wanting to start over. Is this all there is to life? I would wake up in the morning with these kinds of voices saying, you've wasted your life. And I knew that was nonsense. And Carl experienced that and and described it very well. We've stayed in touch. We're still friends. And he's in his 50s now. And sure enough, the load seems to be lightening. (laughs) So is this only a male thing? It seems somewhat... It seems somewhat along the lines of, I've got to achieve that many guys kind of plague themselves with. No, it's not a male thing. This might be, if you want, an opportune moment to talk for just a minute about the research that this is coming out of, which bears on it, or I can just give you the short answer, which is that this has been looked at up, down, and sideways with literally millions and millions of data points from all over the world, and no distinction between men and women shows up in the underlying phenomenon. There is a distinction in the cultural iconography, which is midlife crisis as a cliche, as a social stereotype, is very gendered. It's a very male thing. You know, the red sports car and the guy with inappropriate young girlfriends, that sort of thing. But that's all just stereotype. The phenomenon, based on tons of research, affects men and women equally. Tell me a little bit more about that research. What are the highlights that prove that this is a real thing and not just uh, something that was made up to fit the midlife crisis narrative? Well, if you have just a second, let me sort of just back up a bit and walk you through where this research came from, because it's kind of an interesting scientific story, and it doesn't take too long to tell. So in 1965, a psychoanalyst named Elliot Jakes comes along with the idea of midlife crisis and lots of Freudian jargon. And then that takes off culturally and becomes a meme. And then psychologists look at it and they can't find any sign that a crisis is more likely at midlife than any other time. So they consider it debunked and leave the scene and that's that. And then in the late 1990s, early 2000s, some economists of all people are looking at these huge data sets, millions of people 
surveyed all over the world about their level of life satisfaction. Now, that's happiness, but in a particular sense. It's not your mood. It's not how often did you smile yesterday? How anxious do you feel right now? It's how satisfied are you with your life as a whole, which turns out to be more important for our overall well-being than our mood. And they have these massive data sets. And so they look at, okay, income, employment, marriage, health, all the things that make people happy. And then they decide to just see what happens when they correct for all those things. And the answer should be nothing because they've taken out all the things that affect your happiness, right? Statistically, now everyone in the box has the same health, the same income, whatever. But that's not what they find out. They keep discovering that as people age, happiness tends to diminish through midlife around age 50 and then increase right to the end of life. Developing countries, advanced countries, north, south, east, west. They don't know what explains this, but it keeps showing up in the data. And the latest research now underway, it shows up in 138 countries all over the world. So the economists can't explain this. They just know it's there. And the psychologists can't explain it. They just know it's there. And then in 2012, it starts getting famous because that's when some people find the same pattern in chimps and orangutans. And people start thinking, okay, it looks like there's something going on with primate wiring that militates against life satisfaction in middle age. Does not hit everybody Remember, aging is only one of the things that affects your life satisfaction. If you get a cancer diagnosis or a Nobel Prize, that could outweigh it. But it's a pretty big thing. Other things equal passing from age 25 to age about 45 is like one half to equal to the size of a life event like unemployment or, or divorce. So it's a pretty big thing to go through. I felt it. Lots of people felt it. And now it's pretty well established and people are focused on trying to explain it. So somewhere out there is a chimp lamenting <laughs> that he didn't make the Business Insider's 40 under 40 list last year, that he didn't get a promotion or he doesn't have as much money as another chimp. What are the leading explanations for the dip? Three things. We're not chimps, of course, and chimps don't have jobs, divorces, Nobel Prizes, and so forth. But three things seem to be going on. Now, this is me talking now because science doesn't really completely know yet. They're just getting on top of this, starting to figure it out. The first is that we reprioritize, which is to say, as we're very young, we're very interested in ambition, achievement, scoring points on the board, getting mm. ahead. You know, that's the that's the job you want. Oh yeah. And you know, that's the the house and the spouse and everything else you want to achieve. The thing about ambition is it's a trickster because it keeps moving the goalposts or else, you know, we'd stop, right? Ambition doesn't want us to stop. But as we get later in life, as we pass through midlife, our time horizons get shorter. And we know that. And we start reprioritizing. We put more priorities on relationships and community and less on achievement and competition. And it turns out relationships and community being closest to the people and pursuits that matter most is a much more durable sustained way to achieve life satisfaction. So reprioritization helps us, but there's a transition in between. Second important thing that happens is because of the transition I just told you about, the first 20 years of life tend to be disappointing because we keep achieving all this stuff and yet we keep not being as satisfied as we think. Well, by the time that's gone on five years, you know, I'm 27, 
I figure, well, next year will be better. But by the time I'm 47, I feel like I'm just going to be disappointed for the rest of my life. <laughs> you can't keep leaving so, your life in 90-day segments. At, at the <laughs> Yeah, right. So we'll come back to that because it's a serious point, actually. Staying in the present is an important part of how to deal with this. But by 45, 47, I was disappointed in my past and pessimistic about my future. And I thought maybe my character had changed and I'd never be satisfied with life. This past of yours that you were disappointed in was actually filled with accomplishments and recognition. Right. But the way we're structured, especially when we're young, is we put the accomplishments in our pocket. They become the new baseline. Mm -hmm. I still remember when I was in my mid-20s, I thought, if I just publish one article <laughs> once in my life in some major magazine like Atlantic, then I can be happy, satisfied with my entire life and just die. Well, I did that. I got on the cover of Atlantic when I was 28 years old. And guess what? My ambitions immediately moved to writing books. And then I thought, if I write a book, I'll be happy the rest of my life. And then if I get a relationship. Well, I was proud of the things I would done, but emotionally, I wanted more. So that's going on too. And so by mid-40s, we feel disappointed. We feel pessimistic. But here's the thing, Paul, as Joe Biden would say, here's the thing. <laughs> We also, as a result of that disappointment, become more realistic about how much satisfaction achievement will bring us. And so we begin to reset. That's part of this resetting process. We begin to feel, well, maybe achievement isn't what it's cracked up to be. In the short term, that feels like disappointment. In the long term, it makes us a lot healthier. It's a transition to this new phase in life. So none of those explain the chimps and orangutans, which you know don't have careers. So there's a third factor, which is the brain itself changes. Older brains are different than younger brains. They experience less stress in any given situation, more equanimity, more positivity, less negativity. They tend to be less emotionally volatile. They experience less regret. In other words, the aging of the brain actually seems to provide us some emotional protection for the ups and downs of life. And that can be shown in brain scan. You can see that neurologically. Do we know why and that, that seems to be a biological component, and that would be what we have in common with chimps and orangutans. Right. So we mellow out. We gain perspective. Yeah. We mellow out. We gain perspective, and our brains get wired to be more oriented towards satisfaction and contentment and less oriented toward achievement and competition. So if satisfaction equals experience minus expectations, then happiness, a recovery of happiness past 50 is partly due to lowering our expectations. Correct. Which you'd think would be depressing, right? Oh, you know, woe is me, gloom and doom. But it actually turns out that lowering expectations is good for you in many ways, emotionally, as any Eastern philosopher would have told you. Eastern philosophers have understood for years that it's a treadmill to constantly pursue ever greater levels of happiness. Mm -hmm. So in fact, that realism works in our favor emotionally. Now, I'm not against ambition. I'm happy that I was and am ambitious and striving as a youth. But there's a transition and between the values of the beginning of life, which are more competition-focused, and the values late in life, which are more community and outward-focused. And there's this transition in between. And that's what can get kind of rough. To what extent do you think that ambition changes? Because I don't think I'm any less ambitious than I was 10 years ago. 20 years ago, maybe less. I'm less hungry than I was 20 years ago, but my ambition isn't so much to make another thing. It's to make something worthwhile. It's to make sure that how I spend my days is 
is respectful of the limited time I have left. I mean, that's still a kind of ambition, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that's going to grow on the statistics. As you age through your 50s and 60s, you will increasingly feel like those rewards are the most valuable to you. And that's the reprioritization that I was talking about earlier. That's the shifting of goals in life. You can call that ambition or, or whatever. I usually think of ambition as sort of social striving, striving for status and glory. But yes, what you're describing is exactly what seems to happen. And it turns out it makes late adulthood for many people the most emotionally rewarding part of all of life. And so here's the really good news. This is a good news book. And boy, is it nice to have some good news right now. We, human species and humans in America right now are getting an additional 15, soon to be 20 years of longevity of healthy life in the most satisfying and pro-social time of life, which is late adulthood. And I would argue, I'd be happy if someone writes me a letter and thinks of something better, but I would argue that this is the greatest single gift that any generation of humans has ever received. And yet we don't know what to do with it. (laughs) I mean, like (laughs) you talk about how there's this new gap, the bottom of the happiness curve is misunderstood and that we need to reevaluate what it means both personally and societally. It's like adolescence that happens smack in the middle of life. Yeah, a lot of the book and a lot of my thinking, you know, I'm at Brookings, which is a policy research institute in Washington, has been thinking about, okay, so we have this new story that science is teaching us that basically flips on its head the old story that we all assumed about the trajectory of well-being, basically of adult development. We used to think adult development meant either that by age 20, your brain was finished forming and it'll stay the same, or adult development meant you peak in your midlife because that's when you have the height of maturity and experience and all your faculties, and then you decline into senescence and disease and decay and death. Well, it turns out that reality is more like the inverse of that. It's U-shaped not hill-shaped, that the middle of life is the most vulnerable part. And the end of life, in many ways, the later decades are the decades when we're in the best position to be emotionally strong and most inclined to give to others. But we've set up society so that, you know, you retire at 65 or even 62 or 63, and you're supposed to go away and go chew cud in the pasture. Well, this is just crazy. This is throwing away 15 years of life when increasingly people don't want to disappear. They want to find ways to give back, to join in, to mentor and teach or do what are called less hard jobs, to reorient their lives, get education. Yet we orient things so that all the education happens in the first 20 years. Well, that makes no sense in this new world. Right. The pension system doesn't make sense. So increasingly, we're starting, just starting to see adaptations. Employers are starting to create tracks that are kind of, they're kind of off-ramp jobs. They allow people to keep working, but in less time-consuming capacities and roles often that have to do with mentoring. We're starting to see higher education respond with programs for adults who are relaunching. We're starting to see an encore career movement for people who want to take advantage of the second stage of life, the emergence of support groups, all of this very embryonic. The big thing that's going to be hardest to change will be the government programs, which are all still designed on 1930s assumptions, which is you retire at age 65 if you're lucky to live that long, and then you live another two years and drop dead. Right. 
So I want to talk about where we go from the bottom of this dip, but I want to talk a little bit more about that because I know a lot of people that are going through it and having a lot of, uh, experiencing a lot of pain. Once an executive recruiter, whom I respect a lot, outlined for me kind of a career trajectory. And he said, in your 20s, you learn. In your 30s, you burn. In your 40s, you earn. But he didn't have anything that rhymed for the 50s. I was like, okay, and then what? Earn some more? What do you do after that? Like, where do you well, go? I'm going to go with turn for the 50s. I like it. There you go. Okay. Talk to me. And about that's that. the process we've been talking about. Once you're in this transition and coming out the other side, people are likely to feel a need to do some self-reinvention. Their values have changed after all. You know, they've got the house. They've probably got the relationship. Maybe they've been through unemployment or divorce, but they know what life looks like. They don't want to do the same thing for the next 20 years. So this is the time in life when we start thinking about a relaunch and making a turn that realigns our life with our values. And that's where it's important. Huge message of this book is midlife transition should not be a DIY project. I tried to do it in total isolation because I was ashamed of myself. I thought there must be something wrong with me. I'm ungrateful. I have no reason to be. I didn't even tell my husband about it. And the result of that was that the isolation and shame compounded the underlying problem and turbocharged. And that happens to tons of people. So what needs to happen instead is when we start hitting this age where we want to transition, where our spouse or loved ones or family or friends want to transition, we need social structures to support that, meaning education programs and relaunch programs and the institutional supports I talked about a minute ago. But more than that, we need each other. This should not be a DIY project. Right now, if someone complains, you know, if you went to someone and said, you know, I'm, I'm 50 and I've met all my dreams and I'm still unhappy, they might say something like, gee, Paul, when are you getting your red sports car? Midlife <laughs> crisis, huh? Right. No one wants to be a punchline. The midlife crisis meme has been terribly destructive because it says there's something wrong with you. It's a crisis if you're going through this transition. And that would be like telling teenagers, you're in crisis and it's all a big joke. Don't come and tell me about it. That's just crazy. So one of the first things to accept if you're going through this is that it's normal. That It is normal. In it, fact, it is beneficial. It is unpleasant if you're in it. But if I could wave a magic wand and make midlife transition, otherwise known in my case as my 40s, just be magically super happy, I would not wave that wand because there's a reason for this. This is a transition in our values and in our brains, and we need to go through it. It has a payoff, and it's very important for people to know that. It's normal, it's natural, it's healthy. It just needs to be managed well. But when you want to talk about it, say you're a very successful executive or professional, you're doing great objectively from third parties, it's not considered real good manners in the United States right now to complain about success, professional success. Yeah, yeah. I ran into that researching this book. People say, well, you know, people who are going through this would say, well, I'm not telling anyone because this is such a first world problem. You know, it's kind of morally condemned to be seen as complaining when you're supposed to be a master of the universe. So one answer to this was I went and looked at a company. It was a big advertising agency in Chicago. And advertising is a field where your employees creativity and talent is your only asset. That's it. There's really no capital asset to speak of. So they were worried about burnout. And they did something really interesting, was they made coaching 
life coaching, career coaching, accessible to pretty much everyone in their agency. And they made it normal. They recommended it. And they said, this is a non-stigmatized way. We're taking the stigma away. We're just expecting lots of people are going to be reevaluating and dealing with issues like burnout. And we're going to provide resources to deal with that. And that made it easy for two, better for two reasons. Not easy. It's not easy, but, but better. One is you get the support. Coaching is a really good model for dealing with midlife. I'm really sold on it because it's not therapeutic. It doesn't assume there's something wrong with you that needs to be fixed. It assumes that your values are getting out of line with your life. So how do you move in the direction that your values want you to go? Totally healthy. But the second thing is this also took the stigma away. People were not, even senior executives could be upfront with each other. And even in some cases, they said with clients about, you know, I'm going through this now and and it's normal. And that also lightened the load. So not everyone can do that. Not everyone can afford to. But to me, it was an example of a different way of thinking about it, one that is not stigmatizing and blaming. Again, back to the theme of normalizing as a way to make people feel okay about going through this process. But is it realistic for a 55-year-old or even a 50-year-old legal partner or doctor with a specialty where they're, you know, running a big practice or something to take a gap year and then think about how do I ride out the next, you know, 15, 20 years of my career? Not at the moment. It's getting, we're moving, we're edging just a little in that direction. One of the interesting proposals out there is let people take one year of their social security at age 50 or, you know, in their 40s and 50s and apply it toward a midlife gap year. So there are lots of these adjustments we could make, which would not only make the resources available, but also socially signal, hey, you know what? We get it. We understand that this is an important way to use resources. I predict that in 20 years, things will look a lot different. There will be a lot of paths through midlife that leave people feeling less bereft and disappointed and and abandoned, but it will take a while. Tell me about some of the organizations out there that are addressing these. You talked about coaching at Leo Burnett. Tell me about some of the other organizations out there that are arising to address this real situation. Actually, I researched my book three years ago, so I'm not up to date because so much is going on. Uh, AARP actually is now on board with some of these issues. Um, for example, and, and they're a huge organization. The best one-stop shop to go to, the kind of network of networks where you can find lots of the organizations that are involved is called Encore.org. That's E-N-C-O-R-E. And that's a nonprofit based in San Francisco run by an amazing man named Mark Friedman, who has organized this giant network, the Encore network of education providers and social service providers and think tanks and researchers and academics, all kinds of things that are focused in all kinds of different ways on building uh, this new model of life. There's an institute at Stanford headed by Laura Karstensen, a psychologist who's done some of the truly breakthrough work on understanding adult development and what goes on in midlife and beyond. And they're framing what they call a new map of life, which is going to revise thinking about adult development away from the old model that we talked about toward the new one, but also think about, okay, so what are the needs that people are going to have going through this at each of these stages? 
and begin plotting it out. And to me, that's intellectually exciting. There's lots of corporate stuff going on. There are institutes now arising at places like Stanford University, which are offering programs for highly accomplished adults repurposing in, in midlife. And the idea there, I think it's called the Distinguished Careers Institute, isn't just go back to school and learn a new trade, you know, pick up accounting if you don't have it. Learn to code. Right? <laughs> right. It's not just learn code, but it's, you know, these are accomplished individuals with a lot to give who want to make a transition in life. So it's it's the whole program. Like they're getting liberal arts, they're getting conversations with each other. It's all about kind of a whole package for relaunch. And I'm just skimming the surface. To me, this is both daunting because there's so far to go, but also super exciting because we really are rewriting the map of adult development, the whole model of how we think about the structure of our lives. All right. You're in your early 20s. You're at the National Gallery and you're staring at Thomas Cole's The Voyage of Life. Tell me about the painting and what would you tell that 20-year-old man? Oh, (laughs) it's hard to describe a painting in a podcast. It would be great if in the uh, side notes you could you could put up a link. Sure, absolutely. So one of the ironies of this research is it sounds new, and in the world of science, it is new. In the world of art and culture, it's very old. Dante understood this. The divine comedy begins in midlife. In the middle years of life, I was lost in the wood, is how it begins. So Thomas Cole, great American artist, in 1840, does a magnificent series of four paintings in the National Gallery. They're called The Voyage of Life, Childhood, Youth, Manhood, which is middle age, and old age. And I stumble across them when I'm 20 years old. They're a huge attraction. Everyone who gets a chance should see them. They're wonderful paintings. The youth painting shows a person exactly the age I was then, 19, 20, reaching for a castle in the sky in this beautiful uh, in a boat, on a river, in a beautiful Edenic environment. And I saw that and think, yeah, that's me right now. I don't know what my future holds, but I hope it's going to be some magnificent achievement and all this emotional satisfaction that goes with that. So then I look at the next painting, Middle Age, called Manhood. It's a guy who looks to be about 40, which would have been middle-aged and halfway through adulthood in Cole's day. People didn't live as long. And Instead of being at the peak of achievement, he's not like depicted as being king of the world. He's depicted in his boat on the river all alone, going through rapids under storm clouds without a tiller, just battered and and beaten and praying to the heavens that he makes it through alive. It's a picture of distress. (laughs) I'm looking at it on the inside cover of your book, and that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And when you look at it, so here's a really interesting thing about that painting, all of them actually. There's only one human being in it. There's no buildings. There are no other people. There's no sign of society. What Cole is doing in 1840, long before modern science figures it out, he's talking about inner psychology. He's talking about how the voyage of life feels from the inside where we're all alone. And he's hitting it exactly right. But when I'm 20, I look at that and I say, well, I know one thing. When I'm 40 or 45, I won't feel that way because if I ever even just get one article published somewhere, I know I'll be happy for the rest of my life. The irony, of course, is when I got to my mid-40s, I was exactly where Cole said I would be. Sure. Yeah. I encourage all of our listeners to click the link in the notes to these paintings because 
It is funny. It looks exactly as Jonathan's describing it. And I think I never saw these until I read your book, but I felt the exact same way reading Fitzgerald when I was 19 or 20 working my summer internship, you know, riding the MARTA train down to the bank and thinking, you know, in 10 years, I'm going to be successful and rich and everybody will know how important I am. And it's like, and I got, I got everything I ever dreamed of. And yet I still feel like that guy in the, in the middle age going like, what the hell is going on? I'm not in control, you know? That's exactly right. That's the beginning of wisdom. And, and it's important for people to know that high achievers can be especially prone to a midlife malaise because we don't have a story to tell ourselves about why we're dissatisfied. And because you remember I said that age is just one variable and there are lots of other things that determine well-being. Well, if you're a high achiever and things have gone well for you, you're in a much more exposed position to feel the effects of age itself, which is an underlying effect. I compare it in the book. It's like a river current. So if you're not facing storms or waterfalls or broken oars or sickness or starvation, and you're in your boat, you're going to feel that current. So this is something that can be especially problematic for high achievers, people who are having otherwise good life. And I'm not saying, of course, that it's not a blessing to be a high achiever. It is. I'm just saying that this makes us in many ways surprisingly emotionally vulnerable in ways that we ought to be prepared for. And Jonathan, in the last few minutes as we wrap up, let's talk about, let's talk to that guy in the boat on the rapids. What does he have to look forward to as the river slows down a little bit? You notice one of the wonderful details, there's so many in those paintings, but if you look at the paintings, we see, because we're at a higher elevation, what the man in the boat cannot, which is that just around the corner, there are calmer waters ahead. He cannot see that. And in middle age, I couldn't see it. And that's one of the ironies, the very transition process, which pushes us through this midlife period of discontent, makes it seem like the change will never come. But it does. It turns out, and again, everyone is not the same. Other things are never equal. But it turns out that the aging process in many ways helps us be more content than is the case earlier in life. We are better equipped for wisdom. Heaven knows aging doesn't automatically make you wise. Wisdom is rare at any age. But it does equip us with more magnanimity, more caring for others, more experience, more of an ability to get a distance on our lives, to balance the aspects of our lives. So one of the things that makes people miserable, Paul, is they hit 50 and they haven't achieved the sense of satisfaction that they expected. And they say, well, I'm at the peak. You know, Now it's just old age and sadness, nothing to look forward to. And that makes it much worse. It's important for people to know the opposite is true. Chances are at age 50, you have another 20 or 30 years, which emotionally are very likely to be the best years of your life. The best part is only just happening. And just knowing that actually helps a lot to diminish the pain of going through a midlife uh, transition. Well, that's good to know for me and for everybody else out there that's struggling with uh, the feeling of dissatisfaction, that uh, it's just part of life and you can't outwork it. You got to outlast it. Yep. And mainly you got to adapt to it and don't worry, there's nothing wrong with you. Just, <laughs> I have tips in my book for how to deal with this. And maybe the most important is the simplest, wait it out. Just remember, time is on your side. The name of the book is The Happiness Curve. It's by our guest, Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan, is there any other place on the internet where you might direct people who want to find out more about you and your work? Well, there's happinesscurvebook.com, which 
has the book and some blog posts that I do about it. And there's for people interested in my work, it's not about happiness, which is a lot of it. <laughs> That's and it's 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 somewhat less cheerful, unfortunately, because a lot of it's government politics. But that's uh, my personal website, which is jonathanrausch.com. Twitter at John, J-O-N, underscore Rausch, R-A-U-C-H. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed your work and I enjoyed our conversation. Okay. So I've done 106 episodes, original episodes, not counting these repeats of Crazy Money. And when I think about this episode, it's got to be in the top 10 for me in terms of an interesting conversation, but that crossed with what is the kind of topic I want to address on this program. And this is exactly it. Jonathan's work, I believe this book is a service to the reader and strongly recommend that you pick it up if you're feeling any of the emotions that we discussed in this conversation. So let's talk about takeaways. First of all, as you heard him say, it's normal. Don't compound the feelings that you have, the sense of melancholy or the sense of not having it all together by beating yourself up, right? I spent a lot of years dealing with guilt and shame as a Catholic, and I've let go of that. And boy, when you do that, it is a, it's a liberating thing. Don't beat yourself up. Second, lower your expectations and stop moving the goalposts. This comes up over and over again on Crazy Money. Oliver Berkman talked about it. Morgan Housel talked about it. You know, we make ourselves miserable because we just keep saying, well, I can do better. I can raise the ante. Not to say you can do better in certain parts of your life. Don't make it harder on yourself than it needs to be. Be a good parent. Be a good sibling. Be a good friend. Those are the goals we should be shooting for in life. What can you do about it? Well, number one, I think as I come out of this, I'm going to keep meditating and using the practice of reflecting on the things that I'm grateful for as a tool to remind myself how fortunate I am, that I have a healthy, happy family that I'm connected to and committed to, that I have a good lifestyle, that I don't need to have more than I already have. Although I could want to, I could try to go for the next level, even though that's not going to make me any happier. So meditate on things you have to be grateful for. Secondly, as he said, wait, just, you know, run out the clock on some of the things that are making you unhappy right now. Uh, maybe it's people in your life. Sometimes those people, those situations solve themselves. Did I just imply that your friends who are causing you pain are going to die? I don't know. All I'm saying is what he said, wait, things sometimes have a way of working out. All right. Hey, I have some very exciting guests coming up over the next few weeks. I've got four original interviews teed up. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but it's everybody from a very famous musician, most well-known for his albums from the early aughts. I know you'll find that conversation very interesting. A billionaire who is dealing with existential problems and an old friend from high school who's going to tell us what it was like when she was paralyzed in a car accident her senior year of high school. And we're going to talk about that hedonic treadmill and how it works on the other side. Until then, folks, take care of yourself. And remember, every day is a great day. Mike Carano, do your thing.